and welcome back, everybody, to the Jerry Lawler Show on Podcast One. My name is Sean Reedy. Thank you so much for the download. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Lawler Show. Thank you so much for the download and the support. Please feel free to subscribe, leave reviews, and get in contact with us. Let us know what you think of the show and uh, what you'd like to hear in the future going forward. we got plenty of potential as we move on. Time to introduce my co-host, the King of Wrestling. And uh, this week was uh, moderating a divorce on Monday Night Raw. Jerry the King Lawler, how are things going? Well, things are going great. Finally, after a week, uh, at least more than a week of being sort of sick, or, uh, it was weird. Uh, Lauren, my fiance Lauren got sick. I'm really sick with a bad cold and lost her voice. I didn't, I didn't really get to where I was feeling bad, but I did one day or a couple of days lose my voice. And it was like, I think I really want to blame it not on Lauren, but I want to blame it on Vic Joseph. Last Monday, not, the, not this past Monday, but the Monday before last, I don't know if anybody knows, but right at the end of the show, Man, Vic just started losing it. I mean, his voice was going. And, you know, we went to finally went to a commercial break. And I said, I told uh, Samoa Joe, I said, we need to try to, we need to try to save him here, you know, unless you, unless you and I do most of the talking because his voice is just about gone. So we tried to do that. And by the end of the show, poor Vic has had no voice. And I can't, I can't, I can't deny I didn't sort of snicker at him a little bit. And then when you know it, I swear to you, just like the next day, maybe it was when we were in Nashville. And then uh, after the show, uh, Lauren and I stayed over in Nashville and we wound up going to out to Opryland, the big Opryland thing. They have this big every year. They have this big ice display. It's amazing. They bring in these um, these artists from I think they're from Japan. I know I was in Sapporo, Japan one year and this the whole city there. Uh, they do these ice sculptures, these huge, gigantic, they're as big as buildings, and everything's made out of ice, uh, and, and that's a big thing that they do over there every year. And I think they bring some of those artisans that, that do that to Nashville, and they, and they do these big ice sculptures. And this year, it was all themed about the Christmas Story movie, and it was so crazy. You walk through this whole exhibit, and they got the entire Christmas Story house, uh, you know, built up the front of the Christmas story house. It looks just like it did in the movie, except everything's made out of ice. And then you go along to the next little bit and there's, uh, there's Ralphie in his bathroom and he's sitting there with a bar of soap in his mouth and it's, everything's ice. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh my gosh, it's awesome. I'll, I'll tweet out some pictures of it through the week, but, um, or after we do this, but it was like nine degrees in there and it takes you about 30 minutes at least to go through it. And I talked to some of the poor people, you know, the people have to stand guard in there so you're not allowed to touch the ice or anything. So there, you know, there are people standing guard all throughout the thing. And those poor people are on, they have to be in there on one hour shifts. They just have to stand there for one solid hour in this thing for at nine degrees. And I, yeah, I felt so bad for him. I mean, by, by the time 30 minutes went by, I was glad to get out of there. And then, sure enough, the next day, there went my voice. Possibly blame the Christmas story on you, uh, us having to miss a week on the voice issue. Well, I want to still throw it back on Vic. Yeah, let's go, let's go and stretch. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what happened to me. And I was worried to death that I would be, you know, not, it was gone Thursday. Thursday, completely gone. I couldn't even talk. Then Friday, just a little bit coming back. And I'm thinking, this, when you know it, man, I'll be, it'll be terrible by Raw. But somehow, and it still wasn't completely great by Raw. And, and another thing that messed me up was because Saturday, I 
I had to go do an appearance in Des Moines, Iowa. Actually, the day I was there, it was not really all that cold. But the night that I left, it got down to, or the the day that I left, it was getting down to 18 degrees up there. They'd had snow and everything, so it was kind of cold. But I had to do an appearance at the Iowa Wild hockey game. So uh, there I was once again out on the ice, freezing cold. And uh, but uh, but only for a moment. It was it was so funny. Like the you know they give you. Do you know what they call the, the what they call the, what it's called when the you know the shirts that hockey players wear? What they're officially called? Oh gosh, I should know this in Chicago. People are crazy about them. I thought jerseys, but it's not. They're not jerseys. They're called sweaters. I was gonna, you know, I, th- I was thinking sweaters, but then I was thinking that wasn't it. But yeah, I didn't realize it. And I've done a lot of hockey games before this. But anyway, uh, I just did one down in Birmingham last year. Anyway, they're called sweaters, and uh, so they give me this big jersey sweater thing that I'm wearing—a really neat-looking thing. And they got my name printed on the back, you know, King. And I, they had called me beforehand and asked me what number I wanted on there. I said, I don't know. It doesn't matter. And they said, well, what's your what's your favorite number? And I said, I don't really know if I have a favorite number. And they said, well, what was a number of one of your favorite ball players? And I just, the first thing came into my mind, I said, okay, Jim Brown was number 32 for the Cleveland Browns. So anyway, they got me this real nice sweater. It says King on the back, number 32. So I put that on when I get there, and we start signing autographs and taking pictures with the, all the people there and from this little backdrop. Now my voice is starting to go away again. But anyway, so that that's all going good and then all of a sudden it comes to like uh, time like an intermission game starts of course and I me and a couple people go out and we drop the first puck and they but of course they put like some carpet down out to the middle of the ice, right? And so we drop the puck, and then uh, you shake hands with both the opposing team captains, and they take your picture, and you walk back to the carpet and get off the ice. The game starts. So they play a while, and then it's like a, one of the um, quarters or whatever the periods, one of the periods there. And anyway, it's uh, intermission time. So they have I have a guy that's with me from the WWE, and he's like telling everybody, sort of telling, well, what we can do this, or we can't do that, or whatever. But anyway, this is, can you go out on the ice again? We'll we want you to shoot this um, this gun that shoots T-shirts up in the crowd. And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. Sure. So anyway, then we walk out down again to the ice. And now the players have played on it for an old, you know, an entire period. And it's all chopped up and shaved up. So you can walk on it with your normal shoes and just walk out on the ice. It's no problem. Doesn't feel like anything. So we go out to the middle of, of the uh, rink there. I'm thinking of a T-shirt gun. I've shot one before where you just hold it in your, your hands and you pull this little lever back. Boom, it shoots a T-shirt way up into the crowd. Well, no, they had they had like a T-shirt machine gun. And it's this big this freaking big thing like a Gatlin gun where it's got a whole chamber of maybe it would hold like 20 t-shirts at a time in this big round chamber and then there's this big cannon out the end of it and and it was like scary looking right so I said oh wow this is different from what I thought so they got two guys two interns there on either side of me and everything's timed down to the right time they said okay in about three minutes I'll tell you you know I'll point to you and you start shooting the gun and they had a crowd of like 6,000 people at this hockey game and so i'm looking at this thing and they said all right here's this here's this big crack here when i tell you you pull this lever back and you pull this lever down with your right hand and then there's this this is trigger that's a, like a machine gun button on a that you see like an airplane pilot use right so it's a with your left hand you pull this down with your right hand you pull this back and then you grab the trigger and start shooting and i said so and then I, I'm, I'm supposed to shoot the machine. I mean, the, the gun from one end to the other. They said, "Yeah, just as you're shooting, just turn it to the to the from the left to the right, right?" So I said, "Okay." 
So uh, all of us, I'm thinking, well, we got a couple minutes. And then all of a sudden, no, no, no. Okay, do it now. Do it now. And so I pull this lever down. I pull this lever back. And I put my hand on the trigger. And all of a sudden, this thing is like, it's like I'm shooting a real machine gun. It's a and it's like knocking me backwards. It's got this huge recoil. It's like knocking me backwards. I'm sliding on the ice. And this machine gun is, me and the machine gun are sliding backwards. It was like the recoil was so so strong on it I, that I wasn't expecting. So I was just trying to keep my feet under me while this thing is pushing me backwards. And I never even I never even slid it from side to side, right? I, I, so I think I shot 24 T-shirts to the same person. <laughs> it's, just, it's just shooting. And all I was thinking about was, the thing's going to push me all the way across the floor here, right? And uh, so the, then... I mean, and it only took like five seconds to shoot all of these shirts out. <laughs> but anyway, that was so that was a little bit embarrassing. And I told them, so we start walking back and we're walking off the floor. And so they said, you know, that before I went out there, they said, the ice is all shaved now. You, you can walk on it. Don't ever walk on the wet ice after the Zamboni's gone across, right? I remember that. So anyway, we're coming back and I'm still talking to the guys about how this, how strong this recoil was on this gun, right? Apparently, I didn't see the Zamboni go past. So the next thing you know, in front of 6,000 people, man, all of a sudden, I stepped on the wet ice, and down I went. Oh, man, big time fall. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it was like, it happened so fast that I can't, I couldn't even picture it in my mind. I, it wasn't like one of those things where you're, you know, like you see a cow on ice or something where you're slipping and falling and, and you're trying to get your feet out from under you. It wasn't one of those things. It was just like... Bam, down I went. And I don't even remember if my feet flew up in the air or whatever, but I mean, I went down hard on my my back and my hip and my right hip and everything, and everybody started panicking. And these two guys, the two interns, they're trying to help me up, but now they're on the slick ice too, and we're all our feet down when, he, when they get me to my feet, and when all three of us are slipping and sliding, but we finally get over to the gate and the 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 guy that's helping me from the WWE has been panicking. I thought he was going to start crying. He's going, oh, my God, are you okay? I'm going to get fired. I said, you're not going to get fired. It's not your fault. He said, no, I never should have let you go out on the ice like that. So anyway, he said, do you want to go to the hospital? Do you want to get x-rays? I said, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. But anyway, it was a, it was a big, hard fast fall and i swear that when you fall on that ice it's a it's unreal it's like that to me seemed harder than if i'd fallen on concrete it was crazy stick around we've got more to come on the jerry lawler show Yes, we do, man. <laughs> Unbelievable, man. Titans in here. About to go off, dude. We ready to do this stuff? I'm ready to rock, man. You ready to rock, Camera yeah. guys, ready to roll. Mike, you ready? Ready. Ready. Listen free to Hot Boxing, exclusively available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome back to the Jerry Lawler Show. Our uh, topic today 
that we were planning on talking about was uh, we were going to shamelessly piggyback off the fact that Jim Ross nicely did a tribute to you on his podcast two weeks ago in honor of your birthday. And happy birthday, by the way. We wanted to talk about your announced team. And it's, you know, it's so interesting to me. I know that you think of yourself as a wrestler who just happens to announce on the side. And, you know, with me being such a huge Memphis fan, I think of you primarily as a, a legendary pro wrestler. But just as a feather in your cap, because of the era you were announcing and everything, you might be half of the most recognized, beloved pro wrestling announced team of all time with you and Jim Ross. Yeah, I mean, I do realize that. But you're right about the fact that, the, yeah, I never, still to this day, I don't think of myself as an, an announcer. I just, you know, when people ask me what I do, I mean, if somebody don't, don't uh, you know, comes up, and I'm talking to somebody and they don't know what I, you know, they don't know me or anything like that. And what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a wrestler. I, I still say it, you know. So it's uh, it's not something that I, and I guess that's because I never really, you know, I got in this business to be a wrestler and that's all I really wanted to do. And the, and the announcing thing just came along almost as a fluke. But yeah, I realize what you're talking about because, oh my gosh, now that if I don't hear it once, I'll, I'll hear it a hundred times a day almost, you know, people coming up especially at comic cons and things like that. He said, can you hear the voice of my childhood? And I always tell him, and that's why you're scarred for life. <laughs> and people said, Oh man, I've watched you since I was a kid every single week. And I say, you're really messed up. You need to change the channel. So anyway, it's, it's one of those things though, that, that happens. I mean, you know, if, if that's the, the main voice you've heard, uh, you know, every time that you watched raw for any number of years, that's it just becomes a great and that's that's what you know you and i have talked about this before about how much as when i was growing up lance russell and dave brown they were our local uh wrestling announcers and to me there'll never be a team like those guys and and that's the way i think everybody was whoever they listened to as a kid growing up down in florida down in in, in atlanta gordon soley you know, there's so many people I come across to say, oh, man, Gordon Soli was the greatest announcer ever. Well, I didn't even never heard of Gordon Soli. I didn't even hear of him until I got into the business. You know, all I knew was Lance Russell and Dave Brown. So to me, they were the greatest announcers ever. And good old Jr. you know, he was announcing for Bill Watts before he came to the WWE down in Mid-South Wrestling. But I did, I, you know. I didn't hear of Jr. then because uh, you know their their TV didn't overlap with ours, so um, and that's 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 the way it was, and, and so I, I understand why these people that have grown up, especially you know, gosh, since what the late '80s, those anybody that was born after that, they they never knew about the territories, they never knew about syndicated TV shows or anything like that. So the only voice they heard was either WCW wrestling or. WWE wrestling and and as far as WWE, you know, Jr. and I and and now Michael Cole have have been the voices that people have heard week in and week out. I looked the other day. I've been on. Uh, this still amazes me. If you look it up, you can look up uh, Google it or Wikipedia it or something like that. Who has been on the most Monday Night Raw TV shows? Didn't you break uh, a thousand recently? Yeah, I've I've been on more Raws than any other WWE superstar or any other wrestler or any other announcer, even even more than Vince McMahon, which is crazy. So um, yeah, I've I've been on there a lot. So that's why I understand, you know, when people say you're the voice of my childhood. But yeah, me and good old Jr. Like you said, we started out with a with a three man team there with uh, me and Jr. and and Vince McMahon. 
and that was that was that was a ton of fun working with those two guys at first. The original pairing of you and Jim Ross together included uh, Vince McMahon in the middle of you two. Um, what was that like announcing with Vince? Like, was he running the show during commercials? And uh, like, what was that like working with Vince? You know, I've thought about that in the past, and no, when when um, when we went out and the broadcast started and the show started, and Vince was out there as a commentator. No, it was he was not running the show at all. It was like, uh, and, and, and it's funny because I didn't even, I didn't even think about like, Hey, who's running the show while well, Vince is out here. Even from the, from the time when I started there in 93, Vince was, he was never like, I mean, he would, he would always be in his office. He was not a guy that was walking around backstage and going from guy to guy and telling everybody what to do. He didn't, he's never run the show like that since I've been there. I've never seen him do that, that kind of be a hands-on guy. I know that when the show starts now, he's, you know, he's at the gorilla position. He stays in his office. You never see him. Uh, you know, people have to wait in line. The writers to go in to get something approved have to wait outside his door until it's like their turn to go in and talk to him. You just never see him until the show starts. He comes up to the gorilla position and he's basically watching the show and he might have some input or not. You know, I mean, I swear, like the last hmm, two or three shows, I've not heard one word from Vince, not one word. So uh, but I know he's up there and I know he's watching. Uh, and, and so as far as running the show, that's really been no different. So, like, like I say, well, back in the day. He didn't really he, he didn't really run the show once the show started anyway. So once uh, once he was doing the commentating and he and I or he and I and Jr. were out there, it was it was just like being out there with any other with Michael Cole or with with Jr. You know, he was just uh, the, the commentary and the announcing duties came first. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, you guys were a, a great three band team. You did the famous Bret Hart versus Steve Austin double turn at WrestleMania 13 with the bloodbath and the I quit and everything. And then after Montreal. Well, all I can remember about that. And this is the other thing when I talk about, you know, commentating different matches, there's only a very few things that have stuck in my mind over the years. I, like, you know, something like I can remember the undertaker throwing, you know, Mick Foley off the top of hell in a cell. And I can actually remember Mick turning around and looking up at me with this crazy smile on his face and his tooth was sticking out of his nose. That's something that you'll never forget. Right. I mean, he's, he's on the floor and I'm thinking he's dead. And I think Jr. had just screamed, he's dead, he's dead. And, and all of a sudden he and I made Mick made eye contact and he's just like, I, you know, I could tell he wasn't dead at least, but he just had this, all of a sudden a crazy smile came on his face and his tooth was sticking through his nose. So, or sticking out of his nose. So, uh, I'll never forget that. Certainly never forget that's etched in my mind the night that Owen fell into the ring and what happened, you know, right after that. But one of the other things I'll never forget was, I was standing right next to Vince, and Jr. was on his other side. And when Bret Hart did the old <laughs> and spit right this big hawker right in Vince's eye, and I just I just turned and I looked at him, and uh, I mean it was before he could even get his hand up to wipe it out, it was just this big loogie dripping out of his eye. And then Vince just reached up and wiped it out. And I just, I just thought, 
Oh my God. <laughs> I think I would be puking right now. But uh, yeah, that was that was one of those things after the screw job that I'll never forget. We'll have to do a separate show about that because that's a fascinating story. Uh, so we'll circle back to that. But uh, the Montreal incident kind of ended the era of Vince as an announcer and led to him becoming a heel and then led to you and JR becoming the two-man team handling Raw during the Attitude Era and the uh, Austin McMahon feud and, and everything that came after. Tell me about the chemistry that you and JR developed over the years. He he described it as that he was like the point guard and his job was to get you the ball and you were the star of the team, basically, is how he described it. <laughs> on his podcast. Well, I would have to say that I would I would describe it the same way except put the shoe on the other foot. I mean, I always thought JR was the star of the team, without a doubt. I was there. I always felt like I was there just for a little comedic relief or whatever. All I was trying to think of was what is going to be my next one-liner. And actually, JR was perfect. You know, JR was perfect fodder for a lot of, for a lot of being the butt of jokes and, and the way that JR would respond to those jokes or or the way that JR would respond to, I mean, almost anything I said, you know, with me being the heel, playing the devil's advocate up to almost ever, all the good guys in the matches. Uh, JR had just had classic and great responses to all that. And I think he responded the way that the fans would have responded to me. You know, in other words, when I when I'm saying something about uh I think when I was doing the classic stuff, I know when I was doing the stuff about uh Bret Hart's parents, that was Vince and I. But you know, when I when I talked about how old they were and those different things, then of course, you know, he would it would just he would be appropriately not insulted, but just, you know, he would be so taken aback by what I said. And JR was perfect at that. He had the right responses and even if JR thought what I said was funny he still would only put it over by saying oh king or something like that you know it was just i don't know that and that was just um i guess that's what you would call chemistry and jr were jr and i became really really good friends because we traveled together um it seemed like uh, you know i would always rent the car and i would always drive and i'll never forget i mean it used to drive me crazy when we first started jr was like a big chain smoker Oh my gosh. And I hate, I hate being around cigarettes. I hate being around smoke. And even, and he knew that. And he would not, once we got in the car, he would not smoke in the car. I wouldn't allow, of course, you know, rental cars, you can't smoke in them anyway. I mean, it's like every few minutes we had to stop. And so he'd get out and smoke. And then without fail, he would get back in the car and just as he was blowing that last bit of smoke out the window, uh, in which then he'd close the door and inevitably, Invariably, there was always that last breath of smoke would be in the car, and the JR smelled like smoke all the time. That was the that was the only thing that drove me crazy about JR, and I was so glad that that JR finally quit smoking. That was like the that was I was so proud of him because I you know I I know really how difficult and he, he tried several different times, but now I understand he's completely quit smoking. That's great, but that was the only. That was the only thing about Jr. that would drive me crazy. I, you know, I used to love to travel with him. I mean, we talked about, of course, what had happened on the shows and and what was going on in the WWE at the time, and 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 then there was so much to talk about because you know, for the majority of that time, Jr. was the head of talent relations. He was the he was the guy that probably everybody wanted to be around because you know you get some brownie points you uh, if you're brown nosing Jr. But so he would you know he would talk about talent and and all of this sort of stuff. But the other thing too 
that was that was great about us was we had other interests, both of us. You know, uh, once once we got out of the out of the arena and got in our cars, we talked about other things. You know, all the time. As soon as the matches were over, we'd get in the car and we'd start head out. I immediately had to call my wife or or fiance or whoever I was with at the time. I had to make that phone call and tell them, you know, talk about a little bit about the day and what had happened. And then as soon, he'd wait, and then as soon as I hung up, he, he would make his call. And he'd always called Jan, and he referred to her as Ainge, his angel. And he'd uh, every night, and I used to make fun of him. I said, "Call Ainge, go ahead, you better call Ainge." But anyway, that was you know that was our routine. We'd make our would make our calls home, and then we'd spend the rest of the evening going heading to the hotel. One of the things that he would always get on to me about that I can always remember somehow this, and especially the days before GPS. Like I said, I, I would always be driving. And I don't know how, I, if it weren't for GPS, I'd probably still be doing this. But I would always have us wind up in the worst part of town in whatever city we were driving in. Now, you remember Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase and them, you know, where they st- they stopped in Chicago and asked for directions. And while they're asking for directions, two guys are stealing their tires off their off their other side of the car. Well, that, that's, that's the kind of place JR and I would wind up with in very, almost every week. We'd wind up in that part of town somehow. And then, of course, Cracker Barrel was one of our favorite places to stop and eat. And then, but then one time, I'll never forget, I think it was the first time I'd ever seen, we'd be driving, I saw a big sign that said, uh, there was the Colonel, Kentucky Fried Chicken Buffet. Oh my gosh. This was back in the day when I think they were just starting those things. And I think they probably ended those things because of JR and I. <laughs> I mean, we would, man, they'd have to put speed bumps in front of the buffet when JR and I were sitting there. <laughs> we would just go up and down and up and down. We would tear a Kentucky Fried Chicken buffet up, man. We were talking about some of your classic interplay. I think some of the stuff that people remember the most would be that Austin McMahon feud where you would always be saying, you know, poor Mr. McMahon, you know, why, why, why is Austin always being so mean to him? And JR was the voice of the working class who was talking about JR, or was talking about Austin getting screwed and, you know, fighting back against authority. And it was just a perfect dynamic you guys gave to one of the great feuds in wrestling history. I, mean, I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate people thinking thinking like that. But anybody, I, I, when I look back on it, probably anybody could have called those matches. I mean, that was, yeah, JR and I had a little bit to do with it, but that was, gosh, that was a marriage made in heaven when you put Vince McMahon as the heel and Stone Cold Steve Austin as the babyface. I mean, anything they did was magic. I mean, there, there was just, a, there was such a great time. Honestly, it was like really fun. To, I couldn't wait for every Monday to come along. And I know the wrestling fans were that way, too, because you couldn't you had no idea what was going to happen next. And that's when the business is the most successful, when the fans can't figure out what's going to happen next because they love to try to do it. Everybody, everybody loves to think that they can figure it out. And when you can figure it out, it's not so much fun. It's almost like Santa Claus. At that time, with Stone Cold and Mr. McMahon, it was it was so good and 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 like I said, Jr. was perfect for being the voice of reason and the voice that uh, you know standing up for Stone Cold Man. And that was another good thing too. Jr. genuinely had a great relationship with Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, Jr. is the guy that hired him, and uh, they were great friends as well. I never really thought about how good this is going for us, Jr. I was just, I, I guess, because to me, it just came so easy. Like I've always said a million times, it was like 
oh boy, here comes the time when it's time to start. The show's going to start. Let's me and JR sit down here and like next door neighbors and watch wrestling and we'll talk to each other while it's going on. And that's that's the way I felt every week. And I, I was really excited for the shows to start. We just had a great time. It was, it was so much fun to work with JR. There's two matches that you two are probably most associated with that I know that you've talked about, but uh, we got to mention them. And you already talked about one of them, the, the Hell in the Cell. I mean, how do you two keep it together when you've got a guy coming off a cage through your table and he's got a, a tooth in his nose and you I mean that was just insane well you're right that's the cool thing I guess we were at the point where you almost expect the unexpected so almost nothing really surprises you I mean when we we've gone through like the, the Stone Cold Vince McMahon era they did so many outlandish things that it was hard but somehow each week you would top the week before. I mean, if you remember, I mean, remember his bus blowing up. Remember, I mean, taking a, a brand new Corvette and filling it full of cement. The beer the bath. Busted out. The beer bath. The Zamboni. That, oh, my gosh. The, the monster truck going over, driving over cars. They did. There were so many crazy things that happened that it got to a point where, you know, a guy getting thrown. Of course, still, I mean, it was surprising. It was shocking. It wasn't like uh, totally unexpected. I mean, especially when you're talking about Mick Foley, there was another guy that uh, you just you never knew what you were going to get out of this guy, but you knew it was going to be good. You knew it was going to be exciting, but he would do anything. He was he was I, I thought at the time, I mean, you know, later on, I've gotten to know Mick really well. And, of course, know that he's not really crazy. But at the time, I thought the guy was crazy. I thought he was nuts. And I've met a few guys in the business that I really sincerely thought were, you know, kind of off their rocker a little bit. And, and Mick Foley was one of them. But then after I really got to know him better, I realized, you know, not at all. Great guy. <laughs> Fun to be around and everything. But he was he was fearless. He would do absolutely anything uh, without regard to his life or limb. He was he was crazy. So to see him get thrown off of that. Uh, OK. And this is uh, this is honest to goodness truth. This is like a shoot for real. I expected him to be thrown off the top of the cage when he, when, when the, he and the Undertaker were fighting up there. Uh, it wasn't our desk, I don't think. I think it was in the... Uh, was it our desk or was it... I can't remember if it was you or the Spanish announce team. I thought it was maybe you guys in the middle, but yeah, I can't remember for been, sure. That may have been back in the day that we didn't even have a Spanish announce team table out there. But anyway, when Mick comes flying off of there and goes to the table, like I said, I... I looked, we thought he might be dead. But once again, that was not totally unexpected or didn't, didn't shock me that bad. But when he went back up on the cage and all of a sudden the cage broke and fell through, I mean, here's this huge, massive Mick Foley falling all the way flat down. Think where the Undertaker threw Mick. If you go back and watch it, I mean, you know, he, he grabbed Mick and he, yeah, he did throw him off the, the, the cage. But Mick had some control. You know, you could, you could tell that he, he had as much control as you can have being thrown off a 25 foot high steel cage. But Mick did sort of have some control. But when he fell backwards and the cage broke and he comes falling all the way down and it looked to me like he landed right on the back of his neck that was probably i mean that shocked me i thought he'd broken his neck and that was a true legitimate i don't even know it's it's funny uh i would i haven't really heard over the years i've heard a million times the call 
when Undertaker threw him off the top of the desk through the to the table. But I've never really I don't remember hearing the call of what we said when he came back and he came back again and then fell through the cage. But I can honestly say that that's when I was shocked for real. I thought that there's no way that could have been supposed to happen. And then the other match that everybody remembers your iconic call of would be Hogan and Rock at the Sky Dome WrestleMania 18. Uh, Hogan was supposed to be the heel with the NWO leading into the match. But uh, I think you and JR had to kind of reverse roles during the match because it turned out that Hogan was treated as the triumphant returning hero in Toronto. Well, we did. And I'm proud of that match. And I tell people all the time, they say, what's your favorite match that you've ever called? And I'll mention that as, you know, out of all of them, I'll, met, I'll usually mention that match because you you said it exactly right, Sean. Uh, I was proud of the fact that Jr. and I had to switch horses right in the middle of the stream because that was the greatness of that match is the fans decided who was going to be the heel and who was going to be the baby face or who they were going to cheer for. And it certainly wasn't the way everybody thought it would be. Like you said, everybody thought Hulk Hogan would get booed out of the building and the rock was the big, you know, he was the big top, the rock, the top baby face at the time. And it just didn't work that way. The fans were not going to boo Hulk Hogan. They cheered him like crazy. They started booing the rock and we were just dumbfounded but then suddenly, I mean, just like it was just like clockwork, Hulk and The Rock was, I mean, it was the most professional thing I've ever seen. They switched, they both switched roles and they went right with what the fans dictated, which is what I've always said you're supposed to do in wrestling. That's, you know, you let the fans call the match. You let the fans decide what you're going to do next. And, um, and, and that was, that was so great. And then JR and I, we had to switch roles. You know, I mean, I had to, all of a sudden, I was for Hulk when, when before, oh no, I mean, all of a sudden, I, I was for Rock when before I was going to be for Hulk. Uh, and then we, we just switched just like the, just like Hulk and Rock did and just like the fans did. And it was, it was so much fun to call that match because it was just really off the cuff and just really, uh, what do you call it, shooting from the hip on that one. It was, it was, it was crazy. I mean, how does that work? Did you guys have to like non-verbally kind of look at each other and just signal somehow that you were going to switch roles or you just knew to do it? No, we just knew to do it. Another thing that happened organically as you guys worked together, you know, initially you were just a, a, a terribly heelish heel, just a, a disgusting, despicable person in WWE. But uh, over the years, you kind of became a little bit more beloved by the fans and uh, a little less heelish. And it culminated in the thing where Taz came out and was uh, bullying JR and threatened to punch him and eventually you came in and punched Taz in the face and stood up for JR and uh, kind of acknowledged the fact that you two were somewhat friends in a way. And it was, it was a fun thing for fans to see because they loved you two so much, but there had always been that tension between you two. Yeah. That, and that, and that was a lot of fun too, uh, working that deal with, with Taz. The main thing I remember about that was about that little deal with Taz. And it wasn't that particular, any particular night, but Taz was about to choke me out. And we, he and I were actually having a match and Taz was about to choke me out. And all of a sudden JR gets up from the announce table and he has a, a glass jar of like hard candy there and he comes up and he grabs that jar of candy and he busted over Taz's face and I think I might have got the win with that you know with the interference from JR and I'll never forget we're thinking have we ever done a show with a, a glass jar of candy at our desk <laughs> 
they they mentioned that on the on the JR podcast. It was a little just happened to be a glass jar of candy on the desk. Yeah, what the heck? How how'd that happen? You know, but anyway, yeah. But yeah, working working with Taz and 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 JR in the matches. And and I guess I'm trying to think of I mean, JR got in the ring a few times with me, didn't he? Yeah, several times. I mean, you guys uh, had a feud where uh, I think Bischoff was being a heel and making you go against, like, Al Snow and Coach. And then in later years, you, of course, had the famous feud with Michael Cole, and it was you and JR against him and Swagger. <laughs> right. And now we remember, you know, all this stuff, JR the, with the country whooping match and all this kind of stuff. And JR, honestly, of course, he, he, he did not relish – well, I'm sure he had mixed emotions. I can't imagine that somebody being around the business wouldn't at one time or other want to get in there and, you know, be be the star of the of the actual match rather than just commentating on it all the time. So I think he had mixed emotions. But by the same token, he felt like, you know, that he's like a fish out of water. That was not his forte. And he had never he had never done that at, at all really before. So he whenever they would book him in some sort of a, a wrestling match itself he was never comfortable with that not not at all we'll be back in a moment on the jerry lawler show you're listening to the jerry lawler show thanks for joining us xfl how is it that you two end up becoming football announcers together and how was that <laughs> yeah there you go well you know what i mean that was right down jr's alley are you kidding me? I mean, Jr. had Jr. Had called football before. I don't know if it was high school or college or wherever, but Jr. called some football games before, so he loved it. It was right down his alley. Me, I had no clue. <laughs> I, of course, I was, a, I was a football fan. I really felt uh, out of my element there. So, if you remember how the XFL was uh, and how it was started back in the day, they, they did a ton of commercials. They did this big preview stuff about the XFL, but they had no they had no football footage that they could show because there had never been any football before so there was no way to show what this what the football was going to be like so they they did all the commercials talking about what the football was going to be like but while they were talking about it they were showing these super hot xfl cheerleaders and it was crazy because that was what everybody was talking about at the time Man, let's. I mean, that, that was our that was our big. The majority of our audience then during the Attitude Era and everything that was a young college age guys. And the first week, all the games sold out, and it was literally the only thing people had seen was they knew there was going to be some hot cheerleaders at the XFL games. Sure enough, man, they were, and they were featuring. They were, and they were shooting those cheerleaders left and right. I was talking about the cheerleaders. <laughs> you know, I still have it, and I'll maybe we can do it somewhere down the line. But I still have kept a couple of pages that I actually used one-liners for in the uh, when we were doing the XFL games. I mean, they would do things like the first week when they would do an on-camera with Jr. and I. I would have a cheerleader sitting on my lap. Can you imagine doing that with, you know, John Madden or somebody like that? <laughs> their fans at that time, their fans that were watching that loved it. <laughs> I mean, we, I, I said it was it was crazy. It was it sometimes had nothing to do with football. One time, I think, if you remember the commissioner or, yeah, I believe the commissioner was Dick Butkus, the ex, you know, I think Chicago Bear, great football player, right? I don't know. He was at the game and I just, and the cheerleader was in my lap, and I just kept saying, oh, yeah, Dick Butkus is here. Have you ever, anybody, like, seen Dick Butkus? 
Finally, JR says, why do you keep saying his name? And I said, I'm truly looking at a cheerleader on my lap and said, I just like saying dick butt kiss with her ear. <laughs> how something like, you know, I mean, it was, it was just crazy, the kind of crazy things that we got away with. It was, it was a lot of fun. And JR was, JR was great at calling the, calling football. And I still say, and it was so, so funny. I think after the second week, uh, the word came down from uh, from Dick Ebersol, who wanted this to be, you know, Vince had the the idea of the XFL, and it wasn't supposed to be a carbon copy of the NFL. There was no way. That's a, that was crazy to try to do that. But Dick Ebersol had just, you know, he was with NBC, and they had lost the NFL, so he was gonna he was gonna get his revenge by making this another league that was better than the NFL and just like the NFL, but that, that was never going to fly. But Dick Ebersol wanted it that way. And I still, he, he got his way over Vince on a lot of decisions. I still say, even back then, if Vince had been in total charge and should have kicked out Dick Ebersol, the XFL would have made it. It would have still, it'd probably still be in business today bigger than ever. But ever saw, it's so funny. Like I said, sold out the first week with just showing nothing but hot cheerleaders. And the, the second week, the word came down for the cameraman and do not shoot any shots of the cheerleaders. And I, we got the message in the back and I showed it to JR. I said, look at this. Do not shoot the cheerleaders. I said, this will kill the lead. This is, we're dead. It'll be dead. And sure enough, it went, I don't know, Dick Ebersol had, was the demise of the, that XFL, if you ask me. Well, it's coming back, so be careful about being called back into duty. <laughs> no, I think I think that Vince is, I think he's made it clear. It's going to be totally separate from the from the WWE. I think Vince maybe is going to own it and everything, but I don't think even Vince is going to be, uh, it's going to be all football people. I find it interesting that, you know, here we are still today, you two are not, together but you're both still on national tv announcing pro wrestling shows kind of showing people the way things are done and uh it was a, a great partnership that you had for uh you know almost 15 years of course jr and i are still big buddies i mean i just got a text from him uh the other day about uh, he missed my birthday and he sent me a text like two days later and he said man he said i'm sorry i've been i said i'm sorry happy belated birthday and he said i've been on the road for nine days and then he, I guess he hesitated and he said, and plus I forget shit. We, you know, we, we talk, uh, just, we don't get to, we don't get to go to Kentucky Fried Chicken buffets anymore, but we, you know, we still talk. We're, we're still buddies. Thank you so much, everybody. Please feel free to tweet at us, uh, at Lawler Show or at Jerry Lawler. Let us know what you think and you want to hear about. Really, and, and tell your friends, and you and I got to do a better job of this, Sean. You guys got to help us out there. Tell everybody, Jerry Lawler Show, and we got the new podcast. And it's, how many how many episodes have we done now, Sean? Like six or seven, but we'll get the word out. Maybe wow. JR can help us. Subscribe, tell your friends, tweet about it. Yeah, and if you tweet about the podcast, I'll retweet it and we'll, we'll get a big go. Uh, good thing going. Thank you for the time today. Yes, sir. Thank you, Sean. We want to hear from the fans, as you mentioned, and uh, we'll be back next week. So long, everybody. Bye-bye. Jordan here. I know a lot of you create your own podcasts, and a lot of you already have one like me. I obviously love what I do. It's taken a lot of hard work to get to this point of success. You shouldn't have to pay fees for platform hosting, distribution, analytics 
or fees to create a podcast. You need to be able to focus on producing the best show possible. Now, Podcast One, that's the network I'm on, they have Launchpad Digital Media, or Launchpad DM for short. So it's free, includes unlimited hosting, full control of distribution. You have access to a full dashboard with analytics. Again, totally free. You own everything, by the way. You own your content, you own your subscribers, no tricky stuff there. And you get your own show page on launchpaddm.com for people to listen to and subscribe to your show. It's the only hosting platform brought to you by the leading network, Podcast One. Podcast One will promote the site, drive people to discover your podcast. And if your show grows, you could even be invited to join Podcast One's all-star roster, which includes people like Adam Carolla, Caitlin Bristow, Shaq, Lady Gang, and of course me, Jordan Harbinger, I'm there too. You also get access to their production and sales support. So with all this completely free, don't use other hosting platforms. Why would you need to? Learn more or sign up now at launchpaddm.com. And don't forget to check out the Jordan Harbinger Show.